In pretty much every generation, there'll be someone who is declared the Shakespeare of whatever. Usually, whichever art form is most popular at the time. Normally, the artist will just brush off the idea. Who, me? But sometimes an artist takes the mantle and embraces it. I am the Shakespeare of jazz. And sometimes, history decides that the artist is right. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The artist we're talking about is the great Duke Ellington. In 1956, Ellington and his arranger, Billy Strayhorn, were performing in Ontario, Canada, home of the Stratford Shakespearean Festival. After meeting with festival staff, Ellington made an announcement. The following year, he would come back to Stratford and perform a brand new suite of music based on Shakespeare's characters, plays, and sonnets. He called the piece Such Sweet Thunder, 12 numbers each linked to a Shakespeare character. Since its first performance, jazz historians have hailed Such Sweet Thunder as a monumental work that inspired the idea that jazz is America's classical music. We asked in University of New Hampshire English professor Douglas Lanier to talk about such sweet thunder because he can do it from a unique perspective. Doug is someone with both the musical training and the knowledge of Shakespeare to do justice to this unique work of art. We call this podcast, I Never Heard So Musical a Discord. Doug Lanier is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, how did Ellington get hooked up with this Canadian Stratford Festival? It's interesting. He went to Stratford in 1956 as part of a concert series that they were doing. A lot of the music was classical, and that itself is interesting in that Duke Ellington was at this time beginning to be seen as a kind of classical music rather than simply as a jazz performer. So he goes to Stratford, and the Stratford Festival organizers liked what they heard. So they said, would you do a piece for us that is linked to Shakespeare? And Ellington and his writing partner, Billy Strayhorn, were both Shakespearean aficionados. And they said, yes, we'd love that. So they spent the next half year rereading all the works of Shakespeare and then recorded the project in the spring of 57 and also gave the first live concert of it in New York Town Hall. So you said both Billy Strayhorn and Ellington were Shakespeare aficionados. What does that mean, really? Apparently, again, this is according to various biographers and other sources, particularly Strayhorn was able to quote passages from Shakespeare. Um, Ellington, apparently a little less so, but my sense of it is that he caught up in the next year. Okay, so Ellington says at one point that he and Billy Strayhorn sat down and they and they watched these plays at Stratford and they were really inspired. Which performances and which plays were they so inspired by? Oh, that I can't tell you. Though the he really does manage to sample Shakespeare's greatest hits. So there's Midsummer from the comedies, there's Midsummer Night's Dream.
There's Taming of the Shrew. From the tragedies, you've got Hamlet and Macbeth. Antony and Cleopatra and Julius Caesar. And Othello is a major influence there. So my suspicion is that it's some collection of that group. But the truth is, I don't know. What of Othello do you hear in the Othello section? Help, help me understand this. To my ear... I hear a kind of quasi-tango rhythm. Yes, you're quite right. And then over the top of that, he has this smooth brass and a very sort of smooth saxophone solo that lays over the top. And to my ear, that's Othello's voice as he's telling Desdemona this smooth tale of his background. Act 1, Scene 3, the the tale he tells of him telling the tale of his own adventures to Desdemona. This is a similar question, but how did Ellington and Strayhorn then interpret the Shakespeare sonnets? Because they they do, they created these musical sonnets in this piece as well, and, and I'm not sure I know what that means either. That's a fascinating one as well. And this wasn't discovered until really about 10 years later when Cleo Lane was recording her musical jazz tribute to Shakespeare, Shakespeare and all that jazz. And she decided she was going to sing sonnet number 40 over the music for sonnet to Hank Sank. And she discovered that the sonnet, the words of the sonnet fit exactly the melody that Ellington had written, which means that what Ellington had done uh, 
was to create a melody line that mirrors exactly the 14-line iambic pentameter that Shakespeare has. In other words, what he did was he wrote 14 small melodies that were of 10 notes each. So, for example, iambic pentameter is 10 syllables in the line. That's what it means. And typically those syllables are arranged in the da-dum, 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 da-dum rhythm. Ellington doesn't always accord with the iambic rhythm, but what he does hit is the pentameter part. That is 10 notes, 10 musical syllables to the line. So if you take the very first line of Sonnet to Hank Sank, it's 10 syllables. And each of those, those lines are put together in the course of that. There are 14 of them arranged so that it corresponds exactly to the 14 lines that are in uh, Shakespeare Sonnet. You don't hear this when you first hear it. In fact, many people heard this and didn't pick up on it. It was only when somebody tried to sing it with lyrics that they realized, oh my God, this is the rhythm that he was using. We, we have to talk about probably what is the most famous or the most enduring part of this suite, which is up and down, up and down. I will lead yeah. them up and down. And th- yeah, that's the sixth part, part and it's considered one of the masterpieces. What's the Shakespeare inspiration for it, and why does it stand out? This is a case where we are fairly secure we know where it's from. This is Midsummer Night's Dream, and in the liner notes, we're told this is Act 3, Scene 2. So this is where the couples are the most mixed up of all, and Puck is doing his impish intervening in their fates. Times it's almost musically experimental. The the lovers are represented by four different instruments that are out of tune and sort of chatter with one another. And at the end of the piece, you have almost the most single recognizable moment where you know it's Shakespeare. On one of the takes, Clark Terry, in a a little section at the very end of the song, basically uses his trumpet to say, Lord, what fools these mortals be. Later takes of this don't have that. So 
it's important to sort of search out the right take of this particular piece. So do you think Ellington is thinking in terms of personalities as, a, as opposed to instruments while he was composing this suite? And, and I also read somewhere that he used soloists in his band like characters in a play and that he sometimes yeah. called himself an amateur playwright. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's an interesting analogy to be struck between how Shakespeare is working and how Ellington's working. When Shakespeare's writing his plays, he has in mind particular actors of the company that he's going to assign the parts to. And sometimes that allows him to have elements of self-parody. Bottom is a parody, for example, of Burbage's bluster. And I think the same thing is true of Ellington. When he's writing, he's writing for particular voices, and he knows what those people can do, but he can also treat them as characters, at least for this particular project. The easiest analogy that I can come up with for this would be what happens at the end of Madness and Great Ones, which is about Hamlet's madness. He knows that Cat Anderson, who's playing the trumpet, can go crazy high. So that ability to sort of almost go higher than is humanly possible becomes a metaphor for, for Hamlet's own capacity for pretending to be mad. I'm also thinking that the publicist for the Stratford Festival, Barbara Reed, who helped summarize the plays and gave those uh, summations to Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington, she tells this cool story about how she thought Ellington didn't get the Hamlet section right at all. (laughs) Did you hear that? And she told him. Yeah. And this has been part of the reception of Such Sweet Thunder. It's by no means been unanimous that the Shakespearean content is something that Duke Ellington captured. Several critics said, well, he just cobbled together some of his old stuff. And it might be true in a couple of cases, but I I, I don't know. I think my ear hears something different there. But Ellington himself said, you don't have to know your Shakespeare to get the suite. No, I think that's exactly right. And it's true, isn't it, of so many free Shakespeare adaptations, especially ones that move beyond the Shakespearean language. If you don't know the original plays very well, you're not always likely to recognize that the piece is based on a Shakespeare source. My students in my Shakespeare classes are somehow always surprised when I say, did you know that 10 Things I Hate About You is based on The Taming of the Shrew? And I always have large numbers of students who say, no, that's not possible. That's you know, No, that's a, a great teen movie. I loved it from childhood. No, that's not possible. 
again, you can enjoy that movie without knowing that it has Shakespearean content or it's based on Shakespeare at all. But if you do know your Shakespeare, it brings an extra dimension to the enjoyment of it. Well, I think that's really true about the finale, the circle of fourths. Ellington, I know, introduced this part of the suite at the festival by saying that the principal ingredients used by Shakespeare were tragedies, comedies, histories, and sonnets. So he said that they simply took those four things and decided to, or genres, and decided to progress in fourths through the musical limits. Now, I imagine if I understood what that meant, I would get an <laughs> understand another dimension of this suite. So what does that mean? What does he say? All right. It, it's a hard, it's, this is an interestingly abstract tribute to Shakespeare. The circle of fourths is a musical idea that you can, by progressing from the major key you're in to the fourth, and then taking that key as the new tonic and moving up another fourth, etc., 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 you can go through all 12 keys that it's possible to go through in music and arrive back where you started. It's extraordinarily difficult to do. And I think that's Ellington's statement of saying, I can do musically what I think Shakespeare did in terms of the portrayal of characters and genres. He hits everything, and he manages to do it in the course of his career. So I can do it in one song. So it's this virtuoso performance that is meant to mirror Shakespeare's own virtuoso performance as a playwright. The suite opens with the Othello theme. And in fact, such Sweet mm -hmm. Thunder starts with a black character and it ends with a black character, Cleopatra. And yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and this seems in keeping with a lot of Duke Ellington's work at the time, which was about telling the story of African Americans and claiming high art and culture of the elites for African Americans. Yeah, exactly. And that it it is so very interesting that, as you say, he brackets the suite with two characters who are regarded as coming from Africa. But is that what you hear Ellington saying, that, that Shakespeare isn't just for white folks? Oh, yeah. I think that's exactly right. He's tapping. It's an interesting exchange of a kind of cultural legitimacy. On the one hand, he's popularizing Shakespeare by putting it into a popular jazz idiom. Um, but on the other hand, he's also claiming a kind of classical status for his own art. He's saying, my art is like Shakespeare's and it is up to being compared with Shakespeare. It is a kind of artistic vocabulary that is worthy of Shakespearean content. 
But he also, at the very same time, makes a point of saying, and Shakespeare also included African experience in his works, which, of course, speaks to his celebration of black culture during that time period. You know, it is so wild to think that Ellington and Strayhorn were working on on this incredibly complicated, sophisticated music, often all night after a band date in the in the ballroom of obscure hotels, right, where they were playing. So was this a passion project or, or do you think it was a way for Ellington to prove, look, I'm still evolving, I'm still relevant in culture? I think it's a little of both. Our understanding of Ellington is that he was writing music all the time. You see pictures of him on trains, in coffee shops, and he's always got a score sitting out in front of him. I sense that he's the kind of guy who's just got melodies in his head and he wants to get them down on paper all the time. But that said, I do think this is a special passion project because it allowed him essentially to lay claim to a kinship with an artist who was regarded by everyone as one of the greatest artists who had ever lived. And so by Ellington laying out these parallels between his own art and Shakespeare's own art and the way in which Shakespeare worked, he's making a case for himself as, as the Shakespeare of jazz, essentially. Well, let's switch gears now and, and talk about the cultural significance of such sweet thunder. And you've written that the fact that the Stratford Festival invited Ellington to compose this piece reinforced this perception that pre-bop jazz now constituted an art form akin in cultural stature yeah. to Shakespeare. So you see, it sounds like you see this as a kind of continued anointing of this kind of jazz as highbrow. But who already saw it as highbrow? Not many people saw it as highbrow during that particular time. I mean, the uh, I think one of the achievements of this and a number of the other of Duke Ellington's suites is that that actually brings that perception into being. And that was but what makes Ellington interesting is that he himself is doing the work of classicizing, if I can use that term, his own art by allying it with a variety of different cultural landmarks and cultural figures that would associate his work with cultural greatness. The other cultural context for such sweet thunder involves Shakespeare and blackface and this long history of the minstrel show. And and you've written that Duke Ellington's music used to be called jungle music. Flesh that out for us, the, the connection, because what that connection is between this highbrow transposing of Shakespeare into a jazz composition and Shakespeare and minstrel shows. Yeah, this is part of a very long relationship between African-American music and Shakespeare that stretches back to the 19th century. Oh, Daisy, dear, now you're my wife. I mean to pass a happy life away, away, away in Dixieland. I love my Desdemona away, away. And hand in hand, we'll take a stand to spend Brabancho's money away. Minstrel shows emerge in the 1840s, and they were, I think as everyone would guess, denigrating to black people. Part of 
the minstrel show involved little parody plays in the second half of the show. Now, do you know this piece? You can easily learn it. The plot is Othello, a jealous maw, runs off with Dawes the money, seizes her, strangles her. I guess I'll play Othello. Those plays included little Shakespeare skits, but they were skits done in minstrel form. You villain, there's my daughter. If for my wife, your daughter you're looking, you'll find her in the kitchen, busy cooking. What's that you say? My daughter is your wife? You damn black rascal, I will have your life going, Rodrigo. And the implication always was that, well, black folks just really can't do Shakespeare, and if they try to do Shakespeare, it's going to come out as a kind of parody that denigrates the greatness of the bard. And so minstrelsy is part of that very long and a very strong strain of regarding African-American art as low art. If you then flash forward to big band music, there's an interesting attempt in the 40s to try to now break that sense that the combination of African-American art form, jazz, and Shakespeare leads to denigration of Shakespeare. So you have several different attempts to jazz up Shakespeare. On last week's Tamil Caravan, Benny introduced one of the tunes from the show, Swing in the Dream. Well, everyone seemed to like last week's sample of the score. So tonight, with a vocal hand from Mildred Bailey, he lets you have another taste of the show. The title tune, Swingin' a Dream. There's a famous Broadway show called Swingin' the Dream that was a jazz show version of Midsummer Night's Dream, and it had Louis Armstrong in it as bottom. I think what Ellington did was make that particular connection especially convincing and elegant, and it feels as if such sweet thunder finally dispelled that notion that doing Shakespeare in a quote-unquote black idiom is somehow degrading to the dignity and uh, depth of Shakespeare's art. So would you say it's for that reason that this has been hailed as a masterpiece and that's why we're still talking about it decades uh, later on this Shakespeare podcast or on any podcast? Well, I'll give a quick answer that won't satisfy anybody, but it's really great music. <laughs> it's <laughs> Part of it is it's just a delight on the ear. It's varied, it's musically interesting, it has all of the wonderful qualities of Duke Ellington's music. It's a really good example of his art. His combination of Shakespeare and jazz is in some ways 
easier for the person who isn't a jazz aficionado to understand than some of the later versions that are a bit more thorny. There's a jazz suite based on Othello that comes a full 10 years later by a really great jazz composer called George Russell, the Othello Ballet Suite. And clearly he's thinking back to Ellington, but he's trying to do something that's kind of boppish. It's a hard listen if you're not used to that kind of more challenging idiom. But do you think it would it have been hailed as such a masterpiece if it hadn't been by Duke Ellington? Because there are countless examples of famous people in pop culture yeah. who they get older and they try their hand at something highbrow. I'm thinking uh, like Paul McCartney's Ocean's Kingdom album yeah, back in exactly. 2011. Yeah, that, that yeah, shot to yeah. the top of the classical music charts because it's Paul McCartney doing classical exactly. music. So when Duke yeah. Ellington creates this concertized jazz suite based on Shakespeare, is that why we're taking notice of it? Is that why I it think merits so. I, I, attention? I, I mean, I think the music has merit in itself, but I think also it's fair to say we pay attention to it because it's Duke Ellington and it comes from a person we know who produces high-quality music and has a sense of craft about it, and, and we can be assured that there will be an artistic payoff by listening to it. Doug, thank you so much for this. I really love talking to you about it and love the opportunity to listen to the music. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Douglas Lanier is a professor of English at the University of New Hampshire. His essay, Jazzing Up Shakespeare, about Duke Ellington's Such Sweet Thunder, was originally written for the exhibition catalog for Shakespeare in American Life, the Folgers' 75th anniversary exhibition in 2007. The essay was republished on our Shakespeare and Beyond blog in 2017. Doug was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I Never Heard So Musical a Discord was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Jennifer Swatek and Phil Richards at KCRW Public Radio in Santa Monica, California. The actors in the minstrel performance were Morgan Duncan and Craig Wallace. They were originally recorded for the Shakespeare in American Life public radio documentary. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing this podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face-to-face with one of our first folios the first printed edition of Shakespeare's Plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.